Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, we should be talking about all about the romantic comedy today, and that's because it's in the lead up to Valentine's Day. First of all, remember to keep following us on social media, on the Instagram and the Twitter feeds, and we should be keeping you up to date with any of the latest news and announcements for the podcast as we're moving forward. But for now, let's get back to the main point of this episode. Um, I'm very much a lover of the rom-com i love rom-coms they're very much this sort of thing that are seen as guilty pleasures but at the same time i really enjoyed them it's a bit like the musicals musicals like traditionally unless you're a certain type of person it like for several years it's been quite a you know a guilty pleasure uh but i've sort of learned to embrace it i love the musicals and i love romantic comedies because i'm a bit of a sucker for a soppy love story uh, and that's what a romantic comedy does it gives you a lovely mixture of the romance, but also the comedy leading up to the romance. And I just, you know, some of these films, you know, they're not always, they're not the ones that are most critically acclaimed films ever, but these are the sort of really pop culture popcorn movies that you love to see at the cinema. Uh, and obviously people are entitled to their opinion. If you think these are rubbish, that's fine. Uh, but it probably just means you're into a more slightly higher class kind of film. So these are my sort of top recommendations. I'll try and avoid spoilers as much as possible. But for now, let's get into the list. So the first one on my list is actually a trilogy of films, actually, which is very rare for a rom-com because rom-coms, in my opinion, I mean, I would say Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia, here we go again. They are obviously, that's a first one the sequel and there's there was rumors of a third one <laughs> maybe sometime in the future uh but th that's the sort of only sort of franchise that i can attach with the whole premise of the romantic comedy and obviously that's got music involved in it so musical uh but this is probably one of the few romantic comedy franchises then and it's the bridget jones franchise so based around renee zellweger's character bridget jones uh and we've got three films bridget jones's diary bridget jones the edge of reason and Bridget Jones's Baby, uh, all starring Rene Zellweger as the title role. Originally based, uh, so based on the books, and also originally, I think it was a like a newspaper magazine column by written by Helen Fielding. Uh, and yeah, the books have earned great acclaim, and now they they got translated into film at, for the first time in two thousand one. So that's when the first one came out, and then a sequel came out a couple of, a few years later in two thousand and four. And then we obviously we only got the third one quite recently in the past four years or so uh, in 2016. Uh, so, you know, it's just a brilliant, I would say Bridget Jones, in my opinion, is a brilliant film in the sense that it's very comfort led. You know, if you can just if you are having a bad day and you just want to put something on that's not mindless as such, but it's not the sort of film like a Stanley Kubrick film for instance 2001 a space odyssey is quite a heavy film to watch really uh, and also the likes of any other high class cinema in that respect than the slightly snobbier end of the cinema industry uh, that's super arty i or like a serious drama i would say go for bridget jones or any musical any day uh, so bridget jones just to give you a quick rundown Bridget Jones is diary and the whole all of the films center around Rennie Zellweger's character who is as she likes to call herself a spinster uh, who she thinks she's going to be a spinster for life uh, singleton uh, famous singleton that you know if anyone ever mentions oh I you know I feel that 
the character Bridget Jones was created to be relatable to women. I'm not a woman, so I can't speak of this, but you always, I, I think if you bring Bridget Jones up in a conversation, nine times out of 10, someone around the table is going to be like, oh, I know who Bridget Jones is. Oh, I feel like Bridget Jones. Like it could be anyone. And I think that's the key selling point of the Bridget Jones films is their unique selling point. Uh, the unique selling point of being funny, relatable, but also comforting and entertaining it all in one go. Uh, like I said, Rene Zellweger's Bridget Jones, it starts off at Christmas. So I always get Christmas vibes in the first one anyway, because it starts off at Christmas, ends at Christmas. Uh, so, I, you know, like Love Actually in some respects, it's very much a Christmas partnered rom-com uh, i won't be talking much about love actually though i recommend love actually but we discussed it on the christmas episode with gov so i'm not going to go into detail of that if you want to hear more on what me and gov thought of love actually uh go back to the beginning of our christmas episode uh which is on the podcast sites near you uh but brilliant film love that but i would say bridget jones it brings it brings together a great trio then like there's a great ensemble cast of actors but i would say in renee zellweger as Bridget, Colin Firth as Mark Darcy, the dashing Mark Darcy, as you know, we'll learn to know, know and love him in many, many ways. And Hugh Grant as the, in some respects, villainous, but <laughs> the conniving Daniel Cleaver. And the three of them really do play a good ball game in all of this. It's just, it's amazing to watch because Bridget is, she's in the middle of these two guys and she meets Colin Firth's Mark first. And at the beginning, she's kind of a bit unsure of him because he seems quite upper class and stuffy and quite up himself. Uh, and he seems a bit strange. He has a strange jumper on, uh, you know, nothing worse than meeting someone who you knew from your childhood. Uh, and they turn out to be some quite uh, in her eyes. He's quite attractive, but he's also quite dull and boring. Uh, and, you know, to in her eyes, she's still the same, same old girl that she was when she was younger. And she sees herself in quite a negative light which throughout the entire sort of course of these three films she learns to love herself a little bit more uh, and obviously the main premise of Bridget Jones is she meets Mark then she goes and meets Dan well she meets she already knows Daniel Cleaver because Daniel Cleaver is her boss at this publishing firm that they run uh, that he runs and yeah it's quite funny even though you don't get introduced to Daniel Cleaver straight away you get this sense of Bridget's place within the workplace uh, it's very 2001 uh, and you know she's in a sense being very internal in her mind we got her internal monologue throughout the all of these films uh, in a lot of uh, cases it's shown that she's writing it as a diary extract in her inner monologue uh, in the third one it's a typed out version because we're trying to be all 21st century uh, but for the older ones because it is Bridget Jones's diary she writes a lot of this stuff in a diary and we get to see these nice on-screen graphics of her internal thoughts it's quite nice details where they cross out the uh, cross out like she writes down her weight and it, she says really honest and she crosses it out because <laughs> she's lied but I would say that Bridget Jones you know it follows her little journey between discovering the one that she's destined for which is Mark Darcy in the meet cute at the beginning. So for those of you who don't know, a meet cute is essentially a moment in a film, a romantic film where two characters who are essentially destined to be together meet for the first time. They lock eyes across the room. They grab the drink or a piece of food or something they've dropped at a book or something at the same time. 
that's a meet cute and it sets them up for the rest of the film. And although they might not always get on and they might not actually be madly in love from the moment they lay eyes on each other, they do kind of get this sense of that they have, that are always coming into contact with each other and it's going to take a bit of persuading for them to really fall in love with each other. And that's definitely the case with Mark Darcy and Bridget uh, because Bridget essentially, she falls for Daniel Cleaver because he's the bad boy, uh, the man who she shouldn't love, but she does love and sort of has a sexual attraction to and ends up into some sort of mini torrid affair, which is all quite good from her point of view. But uh, obviously Daniel Cleaver, a little bit of a spoiler alert here for you. He's a right player and he's right toe rag. So <laughs> uh, I won't spoil that too much for you because you can watch it. Uh, then we go to the second one. Second one takes you equally good as the first one. I think in my opinion, the first one is probably it will always be the best one because it's the original. Uh, but in terms of my favorite sequel, I enjoy, I think Bridget Jones's baby stands up quite well. I mean, I don't know whether that's because it was for a 20th, 21st century audience and, uh, you know, like really super ultra up to date audience. I mean, uh, in terms of the way it's been presented, the scenarios that Bridget gets into the fact that she's a slightly older woman in this tech savvy world, she's navigating her way through it, it kind of, I feel like in some respects for people of my age, people of like a recent age, they'd understand it more than say the original Bridget Jones, which was much more about, so for instance, there's a scene in Bridget Jones's diary where she's emailing uh, Hugh Grant's character and it's, it's the equivalent of texting, but you're messaging across the office for our computer. You wouldn't do that now. Uh, if you were young, you'd probably just talk to them or you just text them or Facebook them. Uh, but that's kind of, maybe why the third one might appeal a little bit more to a younger audience but i think the best sequel overall i think is the second one the second one edge of reason it shows the trials and tribulations of so obviously bridget jones's diary shows how bridget gets to be with mark then bridget jones the end of reason shows how she gets to sort of be with mark and the struggles to stay with him and then after that one in Bridget Jones's baby, it's more of a case of they split, they've, uh, spoiler alert guys, they split up, but how they might sort of gravitate more back towards each other. Uh, and I would say the highlight for me, for most of these is in the first two Bridget Joneses, there's fight scene between Mark and Daniel. And it's really funny because it's not the most macho of fights that you'd sort of find in an action, like a Bruce Willis action drama. I would say it's very much a, it's it's like play fighting but at the same time you know they're taking it seriously so that's what makes it so comical uh, they the first one they crash out of a window in an italian restaurant uh fight in the street all to the tune of it's raining men covered by jerry halliwell which i find absolutely hilarious and everyone else is just gawping at them whilst they're having a fight in the middle of the the road until bridget decides to break it up the second one bridget's not even there for uh, it's but i think it's after mark gets her out of jail and sorts her out after she gets wrongly accused of drug trafficking <laughs> in thailand uh, but she you know she doesn't witness any of this and mark and daniel have it out with each other as daniel cleaver's filming some documentary or something and again it's a case of outside cleaver <laughs> and it, you know it's because colin firth is such a gent and such a sensible stiff upper lip kind of guy you wouldn't expect something so comical from him, but he does it with such great panache. Uh, and then they end up in a fountain and it's, it's brilliant. I like, you know, 
you have to, even though I've just told you it, guys, it's a brilliant film to sort of watch. Uh, on top of that, uh, the third one's really good because we we lose while we lose Hugh Grant's character, we gain Patrick Dempsey, uh, who kind of is a surrogate in a way for Hugh Grant. The third film was meant to actually be based on the third book, which came out just before it. But I would say that you know, obviously, because I don't know, Hugh Grant wasn't available or he didn't want to do it, uh, so they rewrote it. And there's been a fourth book that's been published based around the film as well, the events of the film, and. Daniel Cleaver is said to be missing, presumed dead in some sort of accident, mass accident. So I'm quite surprised, really, actually, if you ask me, that the film sort of came off as good as it did without Hugh Grant in it. Uh, obviously, there's a little Easter egg uh, referring to Hugh Grant by the end of the film. I'll let you guys find out that for yourselves when you get to that moment in the third film, Bridget Jones's Baby. Uh, but for now, that's so... Bridget Jones's Diary, Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason, and Bridget Jones's Baby, all three of them. I think I'd recommend the, the first one the most because it's the original. And, you know, when it comes to any franchise, the first one is usually the one that sets the benchmark uh, nine times out of ten. Uh, I'd say if you obviously sequels, I, I think both sequels are quite good. But the second one, I would probably say because it was made not long after the first one, it still has that wow factor about it. Uh, but before then, obviously, uh, there's as many more films that we can go through relating to Bridget Jones. Uh, for instance, Notting Hill, uh, the 1999 classic featuring also Hugh Grant again uh, and also co-starring Julia Roberts. Now, it's quite ironic, this story of Notting Hill, because the first sort of British rom-com that really hit it big in the cinemas and the box office and such was Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, that featured Hugh Grant as a foppish British man who is helplessly in love uh, with the idea of being in love. And he meets this American woman played by Andy McDowell. Uh, and he really just he tries his best to try and find a way to get with her and make her his in a way. Uh, and it's quite ironic in the sense that we've got the story essentially is Hugh Grant falling for American woman because Notting Hill is literally about Hugh Grant falling for an American woman. Uh, but in this case, there's a bit of a class divide in the sense that we've got Julia Roberts as a famous celebrity and Hugh Grant as a mere bookseller in a bookshop in Notting Hill uh, in London. So we've got America versus Britain, the rich and the just sort of middle class, fairly just getting along with life kind of thing. And Notting Hill is probably the sweetest film, I would say, out of all the Richard Curtis films ever, in the sense, you know, from its humble beginnings then. And it really does emulate everything a rom-com should have. You've got the meet-cute, which obviously how the characters meet and how their worlds collide and how they end up carrying on in their lives uh, throughout the entire narrative. We've got the instance of Hugh Grant's William Thacker and Julia Roberts's Anna Scott, they literally collide, quite literally collide with each other. And he spills orange juice all over him and her. And it sort of goes a little bit awry. And they go back to his flat and they end up cleaning up. And then they sort of get to know each other a little bit. They're not quite in love as such, but that's the initial meeting. Uh, and then in terms of obstacles throughout, she's a her career in this sense, rather than another man being in the way of Hugh Grant, We've got her career as an actress standing in the way of this potential relationship, which ends up blossoming 
in part every time they meet, including a very hilarious moment where uh, Hugh Grant's character pretends to be a member of the press and go, gets into a hotel to do a short interview with Julia Roberts, which actually isn't really an interview. They just end up talking. Uh, but then he he pretends to be, I think it's the first magazine he sees, uh, The Horse and Hound, <laughs> the most bizarre magazine publication that you could get and think of to be a, a movie press briefing to interview members of the cast and obviously Hugh Grant gets stuck with all these members of this latest movie that Julia Roberts is in and he ends up having to interview them all and then he does go back and see her towards the end of the day but that's the sort of foppish comedy that you get from these kind of films and I really genuinely think that Hugh Grant in this film he's great he's at his best in terms of his you know not so narcissistic or up himself kind of person where he thinks he's better and he he's the man that everyone wants like he is in Bridget Jones and the Bridget Jones films uh where he's you know Daniel Cleaver's very out there and impassionate about making love to women and doing what he sees fit in the way of lovemaking uh whereas you know Hugh Grant is very stereotypical for the time for the 90s early 2000s at this point as a man who's quite nervous and quite shy about you know women and it hasn't got very much luck in his life in terms of love-related relationships or romantic attachments. Uh, but on this occasion, he falls in love with someone that's, in some respects, way above his like status in life and such. But this, I think, is the main point to take away from Notting Hill, is that love is timeless, ageless, and you know, there's nothing that limits love in some respects. That's the sort of general message that's being said here, that you can be a mere retail assistant <laughs> and fall in love with a famous Hollywood actress and you still have a chance because, you know, there's no boundaries there because, you know, only thing that gets in the way is general ideas behind what separates us as people from those of a different creed or creed or anything in life. So, you know, it kind of, it's a nice sweet story and the story itself is I would say whilst the romance is very central to the story with Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts, and there's comical bits on both of their parts uh, as an American understanding British, British understanding the American <laughs> and so forth. There's a love, there's, you know, the ending sequence is really good where the final chase to, uh, I can't remember the song. Give me, give me some loving. I think it's, it's called give me some loving. Uh, it's a really good sequence. Plays a great pop song as Hugh Grant and all of his, group of friends make a dash final last minute dash to this press briefing that Anna Scott the actress is doing at the Savoy Hotel and <laughs> they race through traffic they do all sorts of things and it's really funny it, it, because uh, you it's very ironic because Hugh Bonneville for those of you who know Hugh Bonneville you might know him from Paddington so wholesome family films is kind of his thing uh, in that respect but a lot of people might know Hugh Bonneville as the very stuffy stiff upper lipped man of regency and all sorts from Downton Abbey uh, and although he has some light moments in Downton Abbey it's very strange to see Hugh Bonneville portray someone so normal and so down to earth but also so funny as well because that's where the comedy I think Notting Hill has got a percentage more comedy than there is romance the romance is there between Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts but the comedy is in everyone for instance Risa Fanz's character uh, who plays the character Spike who's the flatmate of Hugh Grant 
they live together and he's just so open and out there he walks around in his underpants quite casually he has some weird t-shirts with various symbols on them and writings that you know he's asking oh which one should i wear for the date and there's a really funny one which i'll let you guys watch because i'm it's quite rude i won't say it now but for those of you interested and old enough to watch it there's an interesting oh that's a nice t-shirt i think it's a you're a piece of my heart or something like that on the front and then there's a a funny <laughs> uh, do you fancy a something or other on the back of his t-shirt which i find very funny <laughs> like that casual oh terrible t-shirt terrible idea oh that's a nice one turns around it's not <laughs> but i would say yeah risa fans adds that extra spike to it and also it's got the amazing emma chambers in it who sadly passed away uh not too long ago now uh, the lovely emma chambers who played who played a character in the vicar of dibley uh, she was known for that and a couple of other comedic roles but she really does shine in this as the sister of of hugh grant's william thacker uh, she's so sweet, innocent. She's genuinely a big fan of Julia Roberts. And I don't know, you feel like that you get a nice mix between the ultra not so real reality of the movie star meeting reality when she goes. There's a lovely scene where they go to dinner at, for his sister's birthday and she has to sit there and act normal. And it's really funny because for so long they don't realize who she is. Uh, there's some brilliant cracking performances throughout. So, but I'd say Risa Founds is definitely a highlight as a comedy character. And also I think this is one of Hugh Grant's early, one of his earlier roles, obviously, because he started off in, um, I think he's the 1980s. I want to say the early 1990s in a, th in a um, Merchant Ivory production uh, called Maurice. So a period piece, a bit like a room with a view, which if you're anything like me, you'll find terribly boring. Uh, but if you're a Hugh Grant fan, watch it there i don't think he was a big big role in it but he was in maurice and then obviously four weddings and a funeral um he smashes out the part for four weddings but i do feel that notting hill is a great timeless classic it's very much of its time because it's set in the 90s but also it does have you know very it doesn't really have too many references to the period and although sometimes period referencing is good when you're in a specific period and that's where you are I do feel that sometimes when it's made in the same period that it's set, it does sort of benefit from that timeless edge to it. And also another highlight for me for Notting Hill is long tracking shot, massive tracking shot that goes across this market uh, in Notting Hill itself, where uh, it's towards the, the in the build up to the final act of the film, in the final stages of the film, where William Thacker's walking across this market and it, it's done to the tune of Bill Withers' "Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone," and it's so it's so well shot. Like it's not a big, massive Hollywood blockbuster. It's a small little British film, but the way it tracks across and the seasons change as you go through, all in one shot. Or at least it looks like it's in one shot. I think they do a couple of cuts in between for like close-ups, but it's a brilliant shot sequence. And in terms of cinema, if you really love your tracking shots and like camera work in general, that's a lovely example of how simple filmmaking can look really effective. Um, but yeah, like I said, Notting Hill, 1999, Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts, it's a proper classic to behold. It's really funny. Um, I'd say Bridget Jones has its funny moments, but I feel, I think because I'm a man, I think I sort of relate more to Hugh Grant in some respects. But even then, I think the humour is broad across all the genders. I think it's quite good from all the characters' perspective. Bridget Jones, I think most of it is quite... Because you know, Jim Broadbent's in Bridget Jones, but he, I wouldn't say, is the source of 
all the comedy. The comedy is very much focused on Bridget and her experiences, whereas Notting Hill is the, is the experience of Hugh Grant's character. But then it also brings everybody else into perspective and it lets them shine, even in supporting roles. Like, I think it's um Tim McKinnery. He's oh, he's amazing. I don't think he was um people might know him from Blackadder and various other British comedies and such, but he's really good in this. Uh, it, there's a great moment. I think might be either him or uh, Hugh Bonneville who says, get out the car, get out the car, and th- they stop traffic and <laughs> is in that final sequence in the build-up to get William to see Anna at this press conference to say, I love you, and she's going to stay, and yeah, it's lovely. And also the song by Ronan Keating, when you say nothing at all, it really encapsulates it when it's used. I think it's used a little bit in a moment where they're talking in the park at night, uh, so Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. But I genuinely feel that that ending sequence is beautiful, beautiful sort of dreamlike quality. It's amazing. And also the song, I think, um, I think it's used in the opening sequence. It's called She. can't remember who it's by, but it's a lovely song. Very sad as well. It sort of brings a tear to my eye every time I watch it, but it's a brilliant film. Uh, but like I said, check Notting Hill out and Bridget Jones. Next one up on my list, though, is not a British one. I feel like I was nearly going to do a load of British ones, but... In this case, I'm going to mention 500 Days of Summer 2009, uh, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Tom Hansen and Zoe Deschanel as Summer. And this one is, I'd say this one's a really good one for an American romantic comedy. Because for me, when I think of romantic comedies, I'm a bit biased because I'm British. uh, But I tend to think of the classic British ones like Bridget Jones, like Notting Hill, Love Actually, even though Love Actually's got a bit of an international feel for it. I do feel that in terms of American rom-coms, they're not quite the same because comedy in the US is very different to comedy in Britain. We both have very different senses of humour, senses of humour, but we really do, I feel they each have their own individual qualities. Like I think, whereas the comedy is, you know, it's more akin to each side of the Atlantic, the ocean, <laughs> I would say that the romance is just the same. I, my only sort of thing for American rom-coms like 500 Days of Summer is that although they are done quite simply, they always have that next level, you know, that next level of production value. Because I'm not saying that the likes of Notting Hill and Bridget Jones are really low budget. I, I You know, they did have a sizable budget in their most respects, especially the later films in the Bridget Jones franchise when they go abroad and they do all sorts of different location changes and other fancy things. But I would say that America has more of a scope for a bigger, larger production. So, for instance, 500 Days of Summer, I want to say off the top of my head, is set in New York City. I want to say that. Um, but the point is, the shot. there's one sequence in particular I'd like to highlight for you guys. And it's the uh, it's the Hall and Oates sequence. So it's as Tom, so, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Tom, walks through. He's just been accepted on a date. He's managed to get a date with the with the girl of the film summer uh, the girl of his dreams he's been obsessed with you know trying to get on this date and he finally gets a yes and he's very ecstatic and this is shown through song now what i would say about romantic comedies in general is the mixture of like pop music be it from the 20th century now uh, or the 21st century whichever era it's from whether it's present to the day that the film has been made or not the fusion of pop music 
on the soundtrack and the events in the film really do match up well. Like, for instance, that some of my favorite pop soundtracks, like compilation soundtracks, come from romantic comedy. So Love Actually has got a brilliant mixture of songs. It's got Christmas. It's got some, like, regular stuff. So Girls Allowed, The Pointer Sisters, all sorts of different ones. Uh, the Beach Boys, uh, even um, Billy Mac himself, old. Uh, the, you're all in there element of this massive compilation and i do feel that the pop soundtrack in this one i mean i would arguably say that hall of notes is making my dream you make my dreams come true is the standout moment from 500 days of summer so you have tom walking along and then he starts dancing and all of a sudden everyone goes into a massive musical dance number they're not singing but they're like very like no one knows where the music's come from it's just come out of nowhere and all celebrating with tom because he's got on this date and it's amazing um i think 500 days of summer is very melancholic towards the end as well making you sort of realize how realistic uh, you know people need to be about romantic relationships because they're not all sunshine and rainbows but you do get those moments in life where you feel on top of the world a bit like tom does in that moment uh and i'm not really i know zoe dachanel by name but it's not she's not an actress i know from any other films because i'm not a massive follower of her work but i would say she sort of she really does give across this vibe of the good girl but at the same time she's you know there's something mysterious there in the sort of the midst of this relationship that tom wants them to embark on uh, joseph gordon levitt on the other hand i think it's absolutely hilarious that he's in it because <laughs> you know inception 500 days of summer i think they're only about a couple of years apart but they're so drastically different it's mental uh and i he takes he wears that little sweater vest tank top thing and a shirt and he looks so preppy and officey but like so like like an intern then so innocent and sweet and very inexperienced in some respects to the idea of a proper romantic relationship and the fact that he's pulling all his hopes on summer is really says something about him and also the sort of idealist nature of an american film is you dream big you go for something big and then you end up falling quite hard whereas britain it's kind of like you learn to accept <laughs> you accept what you've got uh, and you know that happens in american ones as well american romantic comedies i know there's relationships in the film new year's eve which is basically a rip-off of love actually but set at new year's eve rather than christmas that sort of emulate that a little bit as well but that's not really for me to say so take your own opinion from that what do you reckon do you think there's a major difference between american rom-coms and british rom-coms or not really uh, i would highly recommend 500 days of summer because it's a real joyride in some respects, but real insight into a different kind of romantic comedy, whilst also playing up on all the tropes of the meet cute, the obstacles that stand in his way, etc., etc. Um, but like I said, yeah, as an American one, I think that's very good. Other things I would mention as well, it's a musical. I think I mentioned this briefly earlier, or maybe, but Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, those are romantic comedies, essentially, but with music added on top and actual musical theatre-based theatricality in there into the fibre of the films. Because essentially, you're on about a daughter trying to find her father and create an awkward situation for her mother. It's very comical situation, and there's romance involved. You can't deny that 
Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again are romantic comedies. Although I would argue that the first one is much more romantic comedy worthy because the second one essentially is just an extension of a few things we knew from the first one, uh, but sort of expanding it and chopping and changing it a little bit. Uh, but I'll see what you guys think of that. But moving on from that film, uh, another one I'd recommend is another Julia Roberts pick. It's American as well, so it's a different side of the pond. Um, I would say Pretty Woman, the 1996 film with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in it about a hooker from Los Angeles becoming... Is it sort of like an Eliza Doolittle kind of film, I would say? Because in the sense... So if anyone doesn't know what that means, so My Fair Lady, the story of Eliza Doolittle... Uh, in the sense that she becomes, she goes from being quite common then and she works her way up the class system and becomes more acceptable in an upper class society. The same thing sort of applies here with Richard Gere being the instant, being the Henry Higgins of this situation, but him just being some rich tycoon businessman person who takes her under his wing and really seeing how she can flourish into what his society call a lady and their meet cute is very ironic because it's a very it's a classic meet cute in the sense that all he does all richard gear's character does is stop and ask for directions uh, for a house and she gives it to him but she says oh it's going to come at a cost and they sort of end up having a bit of a dialogue back and forth between each other and then the film continues they don't always love each other. And it's not really until right at the very end where they sort of realize they truly love each other on that fire escape where they stand and sit with each other and go, I really love you. And that kind of mushy stuff. But I do feel that Pretty Woman's a good, another good variation on the Eliza Doolittle story. So if you don't like My Fair Lady, the 1964 film, I would highly recommend the, uh, experience of pretty woman because you know set in los angeles again it's got a great soundtrack and it's got the roy orbison song oh pretty woman uh you know again pop soundtracks work so well with these kind of films you could argue that the likes of footloose and dirty dancing are romantic comedies but they're not romantic comedies in the sense that they're fully comical there's a few comical moments in them but they're mostly music driven dramas and they're like they're in that chick flick category as it were but they're not fully what i would call a romantic comedy but they might be to someone else so you know let me know your opinions on that one but i would say yeah definitely the bridget jones films uh notting hill 500 days of summer and Pretty Woman. The other ones I would mention as well is When Harry Met Sally, which is a brilliant film from 1989, uh, depicting a road trip from Chicago to New York. Uh, and it's just a brilliant, it's a brilliant laugh. Laugh a minute. Uh, there's some real cool scenes in there. And I, I don't know, I think I'm a little bit, because again, I love New York films, but obviously that's their end game. But there's some great backbiting between the two of them. There's a lovely setup at the beginning of the film where you see all oh, this couple, that's going to be who we're following. And the meet cue is right at the beginning of the film where Harry and Sally actually meet and Sally is the driver and Harry isn't with her. And the journey of the film, you discover that they, you know, they're blossoming romance as they do at the same time as them. So they discover it at the same time as the audience and they're really... You know, that's what sort of makes When Harry Met Sally a little bit more personal in the sense, because I feel with Bridget Jones or Notting Hill, those initial meetings, you can see, oh, they're going to get together at the end. You can tell they're going to get together at the end. 
Um, whereas when Harry met Sally, they start off very much on opposite ends of the spectrum. So they don't really like each other as such. So I would definitely say that go for that one if you want an unconventional beginning. And again, I hate to bring musicals into this again, but La La Land uh, presents us with an alternative happy ending in the sense that so you've got Sebastian played by Ryan Gosling and Mia played by Emma Stone. They both fall quite quickly in love with each other because, you know, they start on sort of odd ends at the beginning. They beep at each other in the traffic as they go to their respective workplaces and they do eventually meet and everything sort of goes well. And that whole sequence at the end of the film, which depicts the perfect version of their journey, which isn't all like the full film, but quite similar. It's very much a good insight into romantic storytelling, but also breaking conventions of how we can see the film in a different light that the guy or the girl doesn't always get what they want. They don't always get their their love interest and that things go their separate ways. They might have had a romantic fling, and that's all it was, and that's fine. Whereas some romantic comedies stick with the idea of they meet at the beginning, they have to be together at the end. Whereas La La Land, although, yes, it's got musical components, and it is a musical, Damien Chazelle film, 2016, brilliant film, I would say, for all the art direction and such. I would definitely say it breaks the convention of you have to get the couple together at the end. So I would watch La La Land purely for that reason. And it's a good film to watch as a romantic movie as a couple or even just in general, if you're a musical fan, it's brilliant to watch. Uh, But like I said, I would say probably my top pick for all of these, it's probably going to have to be something like Bridget Jones. Bridget Jones is sort of the number one for me in that respect uh, or any musical for that instance. Um, Other ones that I would mention before we go, uh, finish this episode off, Annie Hall's a good one from the 70s, Woody Allen film with Diane Keaton. That's an interesting one. Uh, Another one that's quite good as well um, is another Hugh Grant one, British one, about the boy, which is very... It brings... You've got the boy meets girl cliche trope, but then you bring a kid into the mix, like, and it sort of mixes up the general flow of the story. So you don't just have this back and forth relationship of does he want her, does she want her, uh, you know, or other way around, or even if it's a same-sex couple as well, because we have the example of Love, Simon as well, was quite a recent film as well, which deals with a non-heterosexual couple. Uh, And there are many other films as well which deal with not just straight relationships. I'm personally just recommending these films because I've enjoyed them. There are many, many more romantic films which deal with uh, same-sex couples and also heterosexual couples as well, uh, more and more these days as well, which is always nice to see some variation in the classic romantic storytelling uh, narrative. So have a little look for romantic films. There's lots of different ones out there. I recommend these ones, but what's your favourite romantic comedy? What are you going to be watching this Valentine's Day? Or just what romantic films are you going to be watching in general? Let me know on the Instagram page. And for now, that's a wrap on the romantic comedy Valentine's kind of (laughs) episode of Take 97, a film podcast. And I'll catch you on the next episode soon, guys. I've got a really exciting episode coming up soon with a guest of mine who I'll announce very, very soon in the next week or so. Um, I can reveal that we'll be doing a Hitchcock special in a couple of weeks, a couple of episodes time. I'm very excited for it. I've recorded it quite recently. It's very good. I'm very excited for you guys to hear it. There's some brilliant banter between me and my guests that I've got on for that episode. So I'm really excited for it. Um, But besides that, guys, happy Valentine's Day. 
have a good one and i hope you enjoy whatever films you decide to watch bridget jones notting hill pretty woman Mamma mia any musicals in between have a good one guys see you on the next episode bye bye